Hello and welcome to another episode of Future Chat. I'm back once again with my super speedy, as usual, Mike Attrell and our laggy as hell senior contributor, Nick Maddox. We're going to try to put a good show on for you today. Mike, why don't you lead us off with some follow-up on ransomware that has everyone across the UK horrified. Is it just the UK? The UK was pretty hard hit, but there are other places. So the good news is that, I can't remember if we addressed it last show, but I think by the time we had recorded, the ransomware had stopped its vicious spread. It hadn't, yeah, it couldn't spread anymore. I'm excited to be here this week, despite (laughs) the lag. (laughs) I don't know if that was comedic timing, but it was great. (laughs) Thanks, I try, I try. (laughs) Uh, so yeah the ransomware had mostly stopped uh, except for those who were off the internet for the weekend and then came on Monday and re-unleashed the wrath of ransomware Um, but there's now a couple at least one if not a couple tools out there that actually decrypt your computer for you as long as you haven't restarted the computer because I guess one of the keys, like the prime number seeds that are used to encrypt the computer remain in the system memory. Oh, interesting. So using this tool, they're able to retrieve those numbers. And I don't know, maybe they know the encryption algorithm that was used or they're able to reverse engineer it or whatnot. But they, uh, they're they able to use those those memory stores to decrypt your computer. But again, it's as long as you haven't restarted, which is probably highly unlikely like most people generally restart if their computer is kind of all crazy so yeah but if you happen to have been hit by the ransomware and happen to not restart your computer then you have a chance of getting it decrypted without having to pay the i guess 300 dollar uh ransom yeah to to get your computer decrypted so that's good news uh and then in additional follow-up news it turns out that Microsoft actually had a, and this is very 2020 hindsight, but they had a security patch that would have prevented this ransomware from, from being spread at all, if not, at least as not as aggressively. Uh, but again, this is for the old XP operating system, which is now two versions old. It's two versions out of date. Yeah, so we're we're on the third one since because there's been ten, seven, and Vista. Well, okay, right. So no, we we have to count Vista. It's technically what I, what an I mean system. is it's there are two. There's a version newer than it that has also gone out of support. So Vista has no longer supported, and XP is no longer supported. Right, there's, right. There's, there's Vista. There's seven. There's eight. There's eight point one. Oh, I forgot about eight. And now there's. Two. I was gonna say like I'm actually running eight right now. There's eight and eight point one. Those were two so different. So how can years. you possibly be running XP still? That's right. Yeah, it was released in like two thousand one. Anyway. Well, so, Mike, never underestimate how cheap some people can be, and by people I mean corporations. Yep. Yeah. Gra- granted, XP is very stable, but at this point is evidently a very high security risk because. Right. It's well, not I mean, security patches anymore. Big stone wheels with wooden axles are also very stable. <laughs> you would never use them today, but they're very stable. I don't think that's the same. Similar. <laughs> so I think I think we're having simile problems. Yeah. In the past couple episodes. <laughs> um, I want to just point out the clickbaitiness of this second link that it will be in the notes from CNET. 
Um, they titled their post, Microsoft held back a free WannaCry patch, report says. And they didn't hold back a patch. They actually patched all their supported systems. It's just that XP is no longer supported. And Yeah, so like that's that's kind of what I got from this, right. was that just the fact that they deprecated it, that's why it wasn't released for it. That's just standard right. software practice. And, and, like. Yeah. They make it sound very like, oh, Microsoft knew and decided not to release it. It's like, well, no, like they weren't supporting that system anymore. So that's why it's a very like hindsighty type thing. Just hold on a sec. So I'll I'll explain. I'll give a little bit of context to for this link, Um, and then Nick, you can add your thoughts. But so it says this this paragraph here says Microsoft wanted hefty fees of up to a thousand dollars a year from businesses for custom support. That's a very common practice with Microsoft, where if you want to use a system like XP that's gone out of its support time, you can pay Microsoft and they will support you additionally. And so it's it's a very deceptive kind of thing to write because Microsoft is not the bad guy here. They're actually giving extra support. And one of the things they did in light of this WannaCry um, ransomware is they provided a free security update to patch this for Windows XP systems, even though it hasn't been supported for years. And I just think that that's like writing this, for, it's like irresponsible reporting from CNET because it just totally vilifies Microsoft when they actually did pretty much everything they could have here. Well, listen, do you want clicks? Do you want them to get clicks? Because this gets them clicks. Well, that's true. It didn't get my click though. I'll tell you that much. Nor mine. But well, that was really what I wanted to say to Mike incidentally. So ignore that in the yeah. chat. But um, I don't know. I, just, I actually remember... The first time I turned on a machine with XP. Yep. And I was young. I mean, obviously. But I remember it being so fast and being so impressed. And I also remember in context that that was around the turn of the millennium. Yes. And I just have (laughs) so... I have such trouble believing that no... Like, at no point in the past 17 years has a corporation gone, man, we really need to update this. Yeah, well, it's it is expensive. Like it's it's a cost. It's just that people, like especially government organizations in charge of health data, should have that. Well, I mean, to pay that cost. It's a cost, yes, but there's also an associated cost with not upgrading. Yes, exactly. Like you miss out on functionality and, in this case, security. Yep. But yeah, I mean, referring specifically to the title, do you want them to get clicks? Do you? <laughs> do you not want C want CNET to get any click revenue? Is that what you want? I'd be fine with that in this case. You're a monster. Why can't you support small business? <laughs> Fair enough. So, Rob, do you want to talk about my story? Absolutely. Let's do that. Because there's not really much to talk about. Sure. Go for it. Okay. So, it's been all over the news for the past couple weeks, and it seems like that's an incredible delay in it only being there for the past couple weeks. But... In a double-blind study, and we'll get to the details of the double-blind a little bit later, it has been shown that soloists cannot tell the difference between a Stradivarius and a brand new violin. Okay. And do you know, like, the legend of the Stradivarius? Yeah, I've heard, like, it's it's the one that goes for, what is it, like, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on, for auction? Like, they're extremely rare and hundreds of years old? Stradivarius worked in... I believe the 1700s, 17th and 18th centuries. So 1600s and 1700s then. Okay. 
And so he was a legendary violin maker. They're, they're widely regarded to be the best built and the finest sounding of all violins. And so, I mean, obviously that's why they're so valuable. And the fact also remains that Stradivarius himself only made so many violins. And now that we're a few hundred years later, that supply gets more and more and more limited as time goes on. And I mean, the inevitable march of time breaks more of them. Yeah. But there was some work done a little while ago. Like, I want to say a couple years ago, they were dabbling with this. But there were concerns expressed that it wasn't a true double-blind trial because you can see a difference and you can... Like, they suggested this, but they suggested the soloist might be able to smell a difference just because... Yeah. I, I don't know how many super old buildings you've been in, but old things definitely have a different smell. Yeah. Like a musky um, type thing. Yeah, uh, but like libraries and and places with instruments have a specific old smell to them. Okay. I That's my experience anyway. But so the, the, they were just unable to tell when the person playing didn't know whether it was a Stradivarius or not. And the person listening didn't know whether or not it was a Stradivarius. Right. It seems like you'd have to... You'd almost have to blindfold someone, too, unless there was a violinist that didn't know what a Stradivarius looked like. Like, blind study literally blinding the people. Yeah, they literally had to blind people. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just really cool news because now you can save a lot of money. And I believe the work that's a few years old actually had people preferring newer instruments. Which makes sense, Now, honestly. Does it, though? Well, there's no, like, we don't say that violins get better with age. There's no other musical instrument that fits that either. I mean, that you're wrong. But what gets like, better with uh, age? I I haven't heard that. Um, now, obviously, like, this is based purely on anecdote, but yeah. I had a cornet, which was, actually, I think it was a C cornet, which was odd because I was used to playing B-flat brass okay. instruments, but my great uncle i think played and so we had one but my music teacher at the time recommended that we get that one fixed up and ready to play again because um apparently or according to her anyway just the years of use and the flow of of the breath over the brass everywhere just creates nice sounds okay at least according to her yeah so there's at least that one where people value it because it's old. And I think it might, that could also be a victim of the bias that this old thing is better, but. Right. It seems like bias, but yeah, it's hard to, like, that's why you need to do studies like these, I guess. Yeah. There, there was also, and I can't remember where exactly I heard this, but there was speculation that I think they were listening in concert halls. Okay. And so apparently the newer instruments are better at projecting into a concert hall and that might be responsible for some of it. And you, they said you can only truly appreciate a Stradivarius when you're up close listening to it very closely. Okay. Although, I mean, you be the judge. Right. Because I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure a lot of professionals that really buy into it will say for decades to come that yes, there is a difference. You just don't have a fully trained ear if you can't tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like high quality audiophiles and the audiophiles that love those audiophiles. 
That's good use of the suffix files. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. So well, there's that, and like, I mean, food too. Like, you could accuse someone of having an unrefined palate. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that where it just comes down to if you if the vast majority of people can't tell the difference, how much does it matter? For me, anyways, yeah, I, I always feel that. I mean, you can save a lot of money this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting, and I'm really I'm genuinely most excited to see where this conversation goes in the future. Yeah, and if someone will be able to pound out a study with an appreciable <laughs> n where. There's just a randomly distributed number of answers where they, they finally come or they get a study that says, yes, you can tell a difference just yeah. purely by chance. Yep. <laughs> Rob, did you, or uh, Mike, did you have anything to add on the Stradivarius being dethroned? I, I thought it was interesting. I always find these types of studies. I, I hear more with wine and how you can get people to give good ratings of very cheap wine, whether that means that the cheap wine is actually good or all wine is equally bad i don't know but. oh man i actually read an article on i think it was someone who works in a store and they said listen the more expensive bottle of wine is just always going to taste more expensive or it's going to taste better because it's more expensive so just i don't know do what you want yeah that's that's the general kind of effect i guess is that if when someone knows something is expensive then they have a better appreciation for it and they'll look for things good about it but if they know it's cheap, then they go in thinking, oh, this is a cheap whatever. And then it doesn't taste or smell or look as good or that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so as, as far as this goes, I think it's, it's flawed from the beginning because how good something sounds is entirely subjective. So you can't really quantify that in a scientific way. Like you, you can measure the waveforms and say this is a pure waveform or that kind of thing. And I'd be actually interested to see that type of study done. Um, but as, as far as which one sounds better, I, I don't know if you can, obviously these guys or people can't tell the difference. So I, I don't know if that means that just, yeah, like, you know, related to the audio quality, it's like just your ear can't pick up the differences. Mm -hmm. All right, gentlemen, grab your mics and head to the latest <laughs> or the head to the nearest symphony orchestra. <laughs> we have work to do. I, I'm very yeah, because it seems like with the w comparing this again to the high quality audio files thing, if we record to the, like the highest bit rate we possibly can, will that difference be detectable? Like, will would would it be possible that different microphones can pick up different sensitivities of waveforms? Like on a bad microphone, maybe you can't tell the difference between the two violins, and on a good microphone, maybe you can. Like, it's all it's all very nuanced and very subjective. Yeah. And then you're relying on the ear of the person listening to pick it up as well, right? Yeah. So it's the double, the you, the two types of yeah. sort, the two receivers effect, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I I'd almost say you'd want a more complex waveform for. Uh, yeah, I I, I guess using. I agree with that. Again, but it comes down to subjectivity, right? Because some people might prefer a cleaner that. sound, whereas other people might like with record players, for instance, you might want more character, and that might be that like fuller richer sound might be more pleasing to the ear of a of a listener who's really paying attention yeah i mean but i'm i'm also like i'm thinking specifically of wind chimes when i say that just yeah. because like a lot of chimes will be set up so that uh other like if you strike one of the 
oh god what is it called tube if you strike one of the tubes it will like there will be other tubes that are on some harmonic of that yeah so other ones will start to ring even if they haven't right. been struck yeah yeah you also don't want to just hear like 8-bit music like just pure tone yeah well i mean like, speak like... for yourself <laughs> cubby's ember is a delight sir <laughs> But, you know, like you're saying, you do want, like, that richer, fuller sound. And that's kind of why I'm wondering if there is a difference in how the the violins produce that tone. Like, for the same, I don't know if you call it a chord in violin music, but... Well, you for the can same play note, a chord. Yeah, you can play. Yeah. Right? So, for the same note played on two violins, you know, using an automated stroke of the... Bow? Quiver? I don't even know what bow. you call Bow? Bow? <laughs> You had the arrow terms right, but (laughs) (laughs) you need to brush up on my violin terminology. Uh, Right, like so, you could do a semi-controlled experiment with that. I think. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, we're grabbing our mics and going to the symphony orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That seems fair. It's a field trip. (laughs) Why not? Yep. So last week, I chastised Mike for not knowing when Google I/O was because we wanted to talk about it once it had happened and it turns out that it happened in between it happened in between our last show and this show so mike how silly do you feel first of all how silly yeah don't you feel silly you're just so silly not even knowing when google io was what are we gonna do with you mike (laughs) Tell, tell me why i should feel silly rob well for me personally again like going back to last week i didn't care about the amazon echo I'm really struggling to care about the Google Home. But uh, so for me, it was mostly about Google Photos improvements. And I'm. Well, the Home wasn't even involved in IO, was it? Yeah, it was. At least in the they got a whole bunch of new stuff. Oh, I didn't even hear about that. <laughs> you did not watch the keynote, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> I had work to do. Yeah, it's tough because we don't. How uh, could you? We don't necessarily have two hours in the day to, like in any day, even days later, to pay attention yeah. to a keynote. Like, I'm usually okay watching an Apple keynote because it's usually well-produced. Yeah. And the people presenting are good. Like, but the last Google one I did, when they released a Pixel, it's like, what are you guys even doing? <laughs> it, was, the, it was bad. IO is better, and it's getting better. Like, it, it is better than it was, and it's constantly improving. But I get that like it feels more like a series of individual presentations of things as opposed to one cohesive message in a keynote and there there were definitely some weird parts there was a part where like i don't know if you're familiar with the slow-mo guys on youtube they have slow motion cameras and they film all kinds of like they're just kind of like 20 something or early 30 something people who do weird stuff in slow motion and film it like in film in slow motion and uh so to show off a bunch of new features of YouTube, they invited them and then had them accept charitable donations in exchange for having water balloons thrown at them on like on an adjacent stage. And it's just like this thing took this presentation took five or 10 minutes. And it was like they're raising money for charity by like having people throw water balloons at them and then filming it and playing it back in slow mo. But it doesn't feel like that is like helping promote YouTube in any way or with Google IO like it maybe have that as a as a thing but it doesn't need to be in the keynote right like it's a it's a three or four day conference you don't need to have a two and a half hour keynote because it has that in it right so i get it but so, there is google home yeah. stuff okay 
So tell us what you've got out of IO then. Well, like I said, so the hearing about Android O was interesting. There's going to be a beta this summer again for people of the specifically like new Pixel phones, or I think the next, the last generation of Nexus might still be able to get it. Um, but it was mostly for me, it was Google Photos. Like that was that's the thing that I use pretty much every day. And uh, like from what I from what I heard of the parts of the keynote that I listened to, and from what I've listened to and heard since, most of I/O was about machine learning. That's like the they're. Google's building custom hardware now. They're called Tensor Processing Units, TPUs, and they specifically help machines learn how to learn. And so all of the updates that they have do that in some way. And so Google Photos, for instance, there's now a lot a lot more powerful face recognition. And so they can actually, one of the things they introduced, which I'm really, really excited about, is the ability to share libraries between people. So any pictures, I can share my photo library with Julia and she can share hers with me and we'll see all of each other's pictures in our Google photos. But one of the coolest features that I saw is that they actually enabled like on a per person permission level, I can also say, allow Julia to see any pictures that have her in it or that have any Mm. number of people in it. And then not only will she be able to see my library, but she will actually have any photos that I take of her with my phone upload to her library in addition to mine. See, that's what I want. Yeah. Like, because if, if the same thing happens with pictures of Emma, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I'll take a picture of her and I want Maria to be able to have it and vice versa. Yeah. But that's we're, we're generally not sharing, like, explicitly sharing the pictures with each other yeah. permission-wise, right? And it'd be a lot of effort to either have, like, a common shared album that yep. you can like that's another solution but again that's an extra step that you yeah. like take the picture go into your photos have to add it to that album like that's a huge well relatively huge pain it's yeah. a first world pain yeah. but it's uh this what you're describing is exactly what i'd want it's like yep. i just want any picture that i take of any whatever to just automatically be shared but i don't want every picture i take to be shared because i take just yeah. random pictures i'll take screenshots i'll take whatever it's like we don't need all those shared as well right yep so so yeah that's that sounds really cool to be able to to set yeah any picture with whatever whoever in it share it with this other person yeah another cool thing that they introduced it kind of seems like all around with google photos especially they really considered all of the possibilities that things people would want to do with pictures on a mobile device that's shared with people on the internet and all that they they considered all of that and then made a bunch of features that really, really dial in on exactly what people would want. So another feature, when you take a bunch of photos at an event with, say, 10 people at it, it will fi- it will recognize that it, it was a block of, say, 20 pictures taken through the space of an hour and a half. And it will recognize that that's all a block of pictures. It already kind of does that. There's some you get Sometimes it'll get a smart album generated. But now once it generates that album, it will say, do you want to share the album with these people that are tagged that are not tagged in the photos, but that it noticed are in the photos? And so you can say, yes, I want to share that this album with those people and pick whatever photos you want to specifically share. It will then share it with them and they will all they will get a notification as well saying, hey, we noticed you also took some pictures during this same time at this same place with these same people. And say, do you want to add your photos to this album? 
And so everyone will get that same notification if they took pictures at the event. And then everyone can contribute their photos automatically to this one cohesive album that's shared with all of them. And it's like, that is exactly what you'd want to, to do. Like you want everyone to have copies of the, all the pictures that they were in at this event, they were all at. And that's just yeah. what they did. It, it's just great. Like as soon as I heard that, I was just like, wow, that that's exactly what I would have wanted when they said, when they said we were updating shared albums, we have the ability to share albums automatically with people of pictures you've taken at an event they're at. I was just like, wow, it'd be so cool if it also notified the friends to upload their pictures to that same album. And then they were like, and we've also announced, and I was like, wow, my mind is blown. They actually did it. <laughs> I'm very excited. Oh, so you thought of that before the even. I, it, my mind it? immediately went to like, oh, that's right. a natural extension. It's like, it's like when a character in a TV show behaves exactly the way you predict they would based on their own character. Like you're like, wow, that's really good writing. This is really good programming in that they thought of the natural extension of a feature, not just like, oh, we now have shared albums. They actually took it a step right. further. It seems like I'm I'm guessing photo file naming has like a standard kind of like the typical photo file name has the date and time in it. Right. Well, it has it in the metadata. I don't know if it necessarily always has it. Well, in... usually it's like, say for my will be like, oh, screenshot underscore something else, maybe underscore. And then like two zero one seven zero five, like it has the date sometimes and yeah. then like a time in it. Every one that I've seen that I haven't renamed myself has some form of the date and time in it. Okay. So I'm assuming that that's how Google also knows when I think that's that photo just was taken. Thing. Because with iOS, they're just named like IMG underscore and then a, a number like 00852. Like, and then Is it? They're named sequentially, but the metadata oh, okay. has the time and date information okay. as well. Regardless, yeah. I guess they're, they're still able to tell when photos are taken. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's good to be able to cross-reference with other people even. Yeah. Like you were saying, it's like, oh, it's a, they infer that it's the same event. Yeah. And they can, yeah, they'll say, oh, do you want to share it as well? Which is, yeah, that's really cool. It's, it's kind of like what we hoped the i don't even know what they called it like the photo party thing photo party i don't know that we oh tried yeah that. we did when try it yeah we create like an event and then it's like oh add, take your photos yeah. and then yeah anytime you take a photo it gets shared to that event yeah that's kind of the same thing but i think there's a lot of friction with that yeah there's a lot this more one's, for sure yeah this seems a bit better for just post sharing and then being able to kind of gather all those photos after the fact yeah one of the cool things about the Google Photos thing is that if you try to share it with someone and they don't have the Google Photos app, it can even send them a link via SMS to allow them to see the album. And so it kind of, it incentivizes people like, oh, I should connect my Google Photos account. Oh, I should download the Google Photos app because then I get all this instead of just being like, okay, I have to figure out which of my contacts have Google Photos installed, which one have them have it set up properly. It just, it shares it and then kind of in a frictionless way, gently pushes people towards installing it and using it yeah i really like that google photos is cross-platform mm. like obviously iphoto isn't um or apple photos or iphoto cloud whatever they call it now and, none of those uh, are right by the way <laughs> all those guesses are right wrong. but a lot of people use dropbox for photo backups and all that kind of stuff yeah. but there isn't that integration and social sharing aspect with dropbox they did have like, that with carousel well, a little bit, but nobody used it. Did anyone know about Carousel? I did, but I think I had it downloaded, <laughs> and then I'm like, I've never used this app before, yeah. and then it got uninstalled. 
but that's that's what's great about Google is that it's cross-platform and it has that that social sharing aspect. And I, I like you know at least on Android it you know gives your memories every so often. It does its animation compilation collages like semi gimmicky some of them but it's kind of nice it's a little bit of an extra thing it's like i'm only using it for just general backup and anything else can be be bonus i guess yep nick do you use google photos at all yes and similar experiences echoed and used so far i'll be honest i wasn't paying attention (laughs) fair enough I, I zoned out. Um, Needless to say, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I like Mike was saying he didn't even watch the keynote, and so and so why should I have to listen to it now that Mike <laughs> hasn't even watched the keynote? <laughs> no, it's just it's it's like we said with SpaceX technology. I, I still find myself very excited by these things, and so I I pay m- more attention. Like I'm willing to dedicate a couple of hours to watch all the things that have happened, but. It is becoming kind of so commonplace that you are able to wit- to think of something that's basically magic and kind of go, oh, all right, I'll maybe pay attention once it matters to me, but right now it doesn't. And I, I actually kind of like that about technology because not everyone should have to pay attention to it all the time. It should just kind of continue to improve on its own. I think a big thing about new features and just new technology in general, that it has to be very non-intimidating mm-hmm. to be widely adopted. Because uh, if something seems difficult or creepy, regardless of how useful it is, people aren't going to be wanting to get involved or use it. Yeah. But this kind of thing, like, yeah, facial recognition, that is kind of creepy when you think about it. <laughs> But people have accepted it. That's like a regular thing. It's like this machine knows that that's a picture of me or whoever. So to be able to use that to identify who's in a picture and share it with them, that is frictionless and is technology that is easily accepted as being okay. It's not, you know, I can't even think of an example, but it's it's not the kind of thing where people would be averse to using it. Right. And right. the Google Photos app now has, I think it already came out on Android as well as iOS. When you go to search for some pictures, you can actually, it'll actually pull up a row of faces and yep. it doesn't tag the faces as anybody. It just shows you the people you have pictures of. And you can search based on, based on a picture of, based on one picture of someone, you can search for all the other pictures of that person you have. And it's a much nicer way. Like you are able to tag those photos with names, but it doesn't, it doesn't infer who people are. It just infers that all these pictures are of one person. Yeah. And and ultimately when this feature comes out, if it's not already out, they'll, you'll have to attach a name and an account to those people in the pictures. I'm assuming like, it's not just going to know that a picture of me is attached to my account and prompt people to share it with me, even if they don't have me as a contact or haven't identified that person as me. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. So, um, was there anything that you did hear about or see at at IO that you wanted to discuss, or do you want to move back in time to the build and talk a bit uh, about that conference? The main thing was this Google Photos thing that I I heard about. Uh, I'd also heard about, and apparently this was a feature that already existed, but with Android O, being able to 
what is essentially 3D touching, at least perform the same action uh, or end result in Android on an app icon, bringing up a secondary menu, I guess. Yeah, like a right-click menu. Yeah, uh, which I think I think is cool, but apparently that's already a thing. So I'm just it, my phone's still on marshmallow. So yeah, it's gotten more powerful, <laughs> but it was a thing. It has been a thing. What was the new thing? They added notifications to it. If you, oh right, yeah. They also, I love that. We we often get accused like when you go back and forth between Android and iOS, there are often accusations of people copying other features. And one of the things Android introduced in Android O is notification dots. So your the app icon will get a dot next to it if there's new notifications for it. And I was just like, it's a it, Android has always seemed like they go a very different direction. So instead of doing that notification thing on the icon itself on the home screen, they would put a little icon up in the top status bar. And now they're introducing a visual way to see if you look at your home screen, you can see which apps have things you might want to check out. And it, along with that, one of the things that they did is if you now long, like hold long press on an icon, it will pop up not only actions, but it'll show you the notifications for that app. So it is, right. it is a very interesting way to use that secondary menu to, to give you an easier way to check your notifications as opposed to having to go into each app to, to see. The Samsung... Uh, what's their launcher called? The launcher? TouchWiz. Oh yeah, the yeah, TouchWiz. The yeah. Um, they have the notification badges for apps already. Like my phone does that. Okay. So it it shows it's like a number. So yeah. it'll be like one, two, three, whatever. Uh, what's after that? And it four. <laughs> four. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it continues to increase from yes. there. Actually, I don't know the, what the max is. <laughs> Probably like ninety nine plus or whatever. Yeah. Um. So that that isn't new, but I guess maybe if it, they're integrating that into the stock, yeah, it's OS, new to Android then, itself. Yeah, well, to the stock launch, it's not a badge; it's just like a colored circle that I, it, it, the color of which is influenced by the app icon. I feel to see the difference. Well, there's no number, so you just know that there there is either there are notifications or there aren't. Notifications. So it's just a badge without a number. It's still a badge, right? But I mean, it doesn't have the number of notifications. That's it's still a badge. You're right. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and i actually have found that useful like at first i'm like well it just clutters my screen but sometimes i'll like swipe away notification or I'll accidentally swipe it away and then i can't if i come back to my phone then i can't tell there's a notification yeah, there. yeah. so if it still remains in the actual app icon then that helps yeah to remember even if my actual notification center uh bar has been swiped away it's really hard, and that's one of those things that I can't wait for like machine brain interfaces to come in because sometimes you really want a notification to stay in the notification bar even if you've opened the app and kind of looked at it. But other times you will have 50 notifications in your window and you don't want any of them or you want like three of them interspersed throughout, but you there's no easy way to be like, keep this, this, and this one. You just yeah. either have to get rid of all of them or delete them one by one. I want to be able to snooze notifications. I think that's one of the things in Android O as well. Is it? Yeah. Oh, good. I think so. Yeah. Because I found that really good with my inbox yeah. is being able to snooze. Because I often do that for like reminding me for when I get home mm -hmm. or when I'm just about to get like leave work so that I remember to do something on the way home or once I get home. Mm -hmm. um, or for the next morning when I get to work or whatever. Like I'll just snooze it until I want to actually take care of it. But if I swipe it away, then I'll just forget that is there and pinning it is the same thing if i pin it and i don't actually go back to the app then then that doesn't help so snoozing is nice yeah 
the um actually Google inbox also got uh it's one of those things that you don't really think about like snoozing notifications inbox is a super powerful email app that at least Mike and I use and you can actually save links to inbox and then like snooze links which I find you've said that before I still don't know how you're doing that you'll have to you can show me sometime you can do it like if you go if you open on your phone or like Chrome has it as well Chrome has an extension for inbox all you have to do is share the link whatever url and one of the options in the sharing center will be sent to inbox oh um but it does uh, it seems like inbox is still a testing ground for gmail because people aren't necessarily fully switching even though like i i never open the gmail app anymore um they the smart replies that came to inbox last year the kind of the middle of last year letting using machine learning to gauge like one line quick responses that you might want to send to an email those have now made their way to the gmail app Mm. and so on one hand i'm kind of i'm excited that the gmail app is getting those features as well but it means that inbox hasn't taken off with the general population as much as we might have expected it to and so i don't know it might go away i think it's it's more like it's gmail pro right it's like power users of gmail will typically be using inbox right so it makes sense that they test features on the power users, find out which are the most widely adopted yeah. or easy to use, and apply those to Gmail. Right. Right? Somebody, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was Download, and somebody was saying that they use Gmail's priority inbox, and they're like, they absolutely love it. And even though Google oh. hasn't talked about it that much, I was like, priority inbox is like the very first step towards inbox and just use inbox it's way better it's like priority inbox on steroids it's only priority inbox there's no other inboxes i find that priority inbox it's not very i don't know customizable is the word yeah it's not as customizable as inbox yeah inbox is a lot more straightforward as far as like grouping and then you can set the behaviors for each group i don't like just saying oh this is priority email this is not because it's not that simple right completely agree Nick, do you use Inbox? Yeah. He, he tuned yeah. out again. <laughs> I found one of the most useful features I find is being able to set any like promo emails to all come in bundled all together at a specific time. Yeah. So every day at 7 a.m., I get my promo bundle and then I just clear it all at once. Like I'll scan through to see if I want to open any and then just clear them all at once instead of having them come in throughout the day yeah. and interrupt me and yeah. being like, oh, that's just another fire or whatever. <laughs> I did not realize that was an option. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think Nick or Rob, I think you told me about that, about being able to to set them all to come in at the same time. And you can do that with any bundle. Yeah. Any bundle. Yeah. So you don't have to get disrupted by, if you get Twitter or Facebook emails like a monster, you can set them all to come to one bundle and only have that show up (laughs) once a day. Rob, was that a pun? Yes. A mon, (laughs) a monster. Is that, that's not a pun. That was not an intentional (laughs) thing. (laughs) oh <laughs> uh, yeah so i could i could see amon doing that though oh yeah he, he has definitely yeah. said that before yeah so mike did you want to change gears and talk a little bit about a couple weeks ago's build conference yes i do actually i, want, I first want to talk about how microsoft has actually been doing good things 
they've they've been shown in positive light in the news. <laughs> Actually, p- pretty much since the Surface, uh, which was it? The Surface Pro, the Surface Pro. Book. No, what was the one? What was the table thing? Oh, the Surface Studio. Surface Studio. Yeah. So that was like the first thing. It's like, wow, Microsoft is doing stuff again. Mm. And then Apple people were like, wow, that's actually cool. Yeah. And then the Surface laptop was like, oh, this is the MacBook Air that we always <laughs> wanted. Like, um, so yeah, they released a, a Surface laptop. So they've branded it Surface, yeah. the same as their hybrid tablet line. But this is just a straight up laptop that's, uh, yeah, comparable specs to, is it comparable to the MacBook Pro? No, it's it just comparable the to the Air, I would say. The, you can, is it? You can scale it up, but it's like it starts off pretty low end. Like it starts off basically oh, okay. not a Chromebook, but like a, a MacBook air for sure. Okay. Or a MacBook. And you can, you can spec it up to just the base level MacBook. Is that the idea? I think you can spec it up of? to probably low end MacBook pros. Okay. Yeah. So regardless, it's just a, a premium, my PC laptop, yeah. which yeah, admittedly like Samsung and HP and Lenovo, like all those companies still make varying degrees of premium yeah, laptops. Uh, but a Microsoft one hasn't existed ever. Oh, I ever? guess the Surface yeah, Pro was, did. It was that. Well, was that a laptop or is that a Surface? The Surface, I guess so. You're right. Yeah, that was a Surface, like the, like just a hinge, right? Just hinge a regular computer, laptop. Right? They haven't really. Done they, it. Yeah, they had like the Surface was their first branded PC. Yes. And then this is the first branded PC laptop. So. And, and it's got good reception so far, and it it kind of fills that gap of a trusted manufacturer that will hopefully yeah be designed with the operating system in mind and not leave stuff to be desired yeah I guess and is a yeah direct competitor with the the MacBook Air which was updated not updated I guess this last time round with the Escape it was not updated at all. I, well, I mean, the air itself was is done, but they've, yeah. they've replaced it with, I think, is what the escape is supposed to be, right? Yeah. yeah. In theory. In theory. It's, it's, well, there's no other, there's nothing else that would fill yeah. that gap. So, yeah. um, obviously, Mac versus PC, but this is, uh, spec-wise, this is kind of filling that gap. So, uh, yeah, my, Microsoft is back back in the game, I guess. Yeah. To say the least, which is, which is good to see. Uh so shortly following that, they had their build conference and they talked about a couple of things. I think you're probably better to talk about the graph. Yeah. So this feature, this appealed to me on a deep level because it, it seems very Apple like on a level that even Apple hasn't tried yet. So what Microsoft, what the Microsoft graph basically is, and maybe I'm not describing this fully, but at least the, the capability of the Microsoft graph that I was most interested in is the ability to have your the things you are doing on your computers sync between them. So activity that you do carrying through and kind of like the the way that Chrome works is you have you have a list of tabs and you can if you sign your computers up to your Google account, you can go to any one of your Chrome instances and see what tabs you have open on your other devices and open them quickly. And Microsoft introduced basically a way to do that with Windows, with iOS, and with Android, as long as you're using Microsoft apps. And so on your Windows desktop or on your, like using the Cortana app on Android or iOS, 
you can go back and look at kind of a linear history of the things that you have been working on, like whether they're PowerPoint documents, whether they're Excel Word documents, whether they're web pages, you will, or whether they're clipboard entries, you can go and say you're working on a PowerPoint presentation on your home computer and you are on the go and you want to make a couple quick tweaks to it on your phone. You can open up the graph, see that, that document you were last working on, open it straight from there. And then so you don't have to like kind of dig around to th for things you were just recently doing. It kind of remembers the context of you on multiple devices. It's, it's a similar idea to continuity, which Apple has, but it's very much continuity is very much second to second. Like I'd have to be on my computer with a program open, op grab my phone right then while it's still open and I can switch directly to that same context, but there's no memory yeah. later. Like I can, I could never with iOS or with Apple's products, I could never be playing a playlist on my computer and then pick up where I left off from that playlist on, on like on the music app on my phone that it doesn't remember that context. But what uh, Microsoft is promising to do with graph is to at least be able to have, let developers have those hooks in their apps for cross platform to be able to be like, Hey, you were just doing this. Do you want to now do this on this other computer? And I'm very, very interested to see how that looks because it's the kind of thing that Apple, I think could do really well, but they haven't done anything like that yet. Other than that kind of one-to-one -one, second to second, I want to open this on my other thing because it's already open on this one thing. So is that the intent? So, okay. The, to recap, this works in its current form with office apps. Microsoft right, like apps, Microsoft like apps, the Microsoft, Microsoft Store apps, right. apps. Okay, so you're saying that the idea is to open it up so that my, I don't know, my whatever messaging app that I have both on my PC and my Android yeah. phone will be able to hook into the graph right. as well? Is that the idea yeah. to say yeah, yeah. on your PC you were in this conversation, Right. now you can resume right it on back your Android it, yeah. phone? So without needing mm -hmm. to... it's. It's like having, a, like in my mind, it's like having a reverse chronological list of your notifications that you can, like a history of what things you've been doing to be able to jump right back to them as opposed to having to navigate back to that same spot through like opening an app, selecting the context on the new, on the different device, going back to that document, right. going back to that conversation, whatever it is, having a list of recent things you've done and being able to just jump right back into them. Right. I think what you said at the beginning about it being kind of like Chrome, yeah. like the way Chrome behaves right now, that's probably a good way to think yeah, about it. Because yeah. that's my experience with continuity mm -hmm. is being able to do something on my home computer or on my phone, then go to work and be like, oh, was that site I was on? And then I'll be in my history or whatever. Like that's a very simplistic implementation of literal history. Yeah. But that's that's kind of the same effect that you can do with anything like documents or, or apps or yeah whatever you might want to plug into it. So yeah, I'm very eager because like we mentioned with Google Photos, cross-platform is kind of the killer feature now in for a lot of our uses. And Microsoft's been taking a ton of steps to say, hey, we, we really like Android and iOS. Like use Android and iOS by all means. We can't really compete with, Win with our Windows Mobile, but we will allow you to actually use Microsoft computers, a PC, with those smartphones 
And I think that's kind of a really yeah. smart idea. One of the other things they introduced is um, being able to develop, well, they've been doing it for a while, but making it better, being able to develop and test iOS apps on Microsoft computers. And so you don't necessarily need Xcode on your Mac to be able to develop a cross-platform app. Whereas before you you could develop all kinds of stuff on for for my, um, Windows Phone or for Android on your Mac, on your Windows PC. But if you wanted to develop an iOS version, you need a Mac. And a lot of apps tend to be iOS first. And so it's like, okay, well, we need a Mac. I guess as an afterthought, we'll also get the ability to download. And there are now a bunch of different um, platforms, like developer interfaces to be able to do that. But Microsoft is partnering with ones like, I think they actually bought the development interface Xamarin. And that's one of the ones that does cross-platform stuff. So like they're heavily investing in the ability for people to develop on iOS without needing to use a Mac, like being able to do it with a PC. Hmm. I'm very intrigued. Although I am eagerly awaiting what Apple announces because it kind of seems like they're having to play catch up now. They're behind in As a lot of ways. As it relates to the continuity in In feature. all the ways, like in, in all the things we talked about today, right. Apple is not as good as the other companies. Like I, re- I really like iOS because these other companies, these other big companies are catering to apple and apple users but in terms of their own software itself other than the platform like other than the operating system all they're offering is a really good operating system and the ability to run apps that's that's the strength of the platform to me it's not the features that they themselves offer in their own apps right yeah you rely on the developers to release stuff like that yeah yeah so that was my main um that was my main takeaway from Windows, right. the Microsoft build. The other big thing that they did, if if Google focused a lot on uh, machine learning, Build focused a ton on HoloLens, virtual reality, augmented reality. And I was also very interested to see that because it kind of seems like for the first time in a long time, I had that thought of, wow, there are people on Earth right now who are living in such a more advanced technological world than me using HoloLens to develop things. And usually I'm the person that's like, oh, cool, that just got announced. I can go do that now. And now it's kind of like with all this new technology, it's very much targeting businesses that are specifically needing these more advanced technologies like virtual reality technology. And it's unfamiliar. Yeah, I was going to ask if they talked about HoloLens at all. What is the the current status of that development basically it went down the same route or so far it's gone down the same route that uh, google glass ended up where there are maybe certain very specific applications or not very specific but specific applications that can really benefit from it so one of the things they had was on stage they showed a demo of the team from Cirque du Soleil using hololens devices to be able to visually represent in three-dimensional space how like the building of their stages staging of the performers kind of they're able to virtually see and scale exactly what they're going to do in their building their shows as opposed to having to build sets months in advance in order to plan things out they can kind of plan things in 3d and see what they actually look like without having to build them first and so it makes creating a a soleil show much more like a a lot cheaper first of all because you don't have actually to build the sets right away it lets you plan out the things and do it faster and in a less expensive way. Right. 
I think another good application of that would be in like construction yeah. and you know landscaping and renos and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff where you're interfacing say you're a project manager you're interfacing with your workers to tell like you know it tell, let them know how to do mm-hmm. things what to do where to put things and then you have customers that want to know what it's going to look like right and say you know make decisions on on what to choose and that kind of thing uh so i think that could go a long way where you know you, you have a couple people on the headsets and they don't have to be in the same place yep. right like they just have to plug into the same uh you know one person on site doing all the manipulation and or like giving that background image and the other people can do the manipulation within that yeah. environment right like i'm I'm assuming that's how it could yep. work right like you shouldn't it shouldn't have to all be entirely augmented it can be a virtual reality for some people right. where they're de- getting the camera feed yeah. from one person and then still being able to interact with that environment yeah they they, inter- they had a couple of examples they had one of the big flight companies i forget if it was boeing or like um trying to remember the other name but they so it was a big flight company they were doing their training as opposed to having to was it airbus maybe they're having to train as opposed to having to take apart like decommission or take offline different aircraft to teach people about how the engines go together they were able to use hololens to kind of virtually deconstruct the engine and show people in real space what parts go where and how they work and why and all that without having to actually take aircraft offline and they had like a restaurateur building their restaurant and arranging tables and being able to actually see how these things work out. In the, one of the other things, like you uh, you mentioned being able to work together. They had three Cirque du Soleil presenters. And they had, so they had one person that they had a bunch of pre-built shapes that they were going to be placing in this demo. And one person would go, okay, now I'm going to grab this column and I'm going to put columns here, here, and here. And then... Uh, the second presenter would go and grab the column they just placed and then like tweak it and move it and rotate it. And you're kind of able to work together in the same space. And I just like, it struck me as so so removed from what our everyday computing experience is, but it's like, that's so awesome. And I see so many applications for technology like that. Yeah. Cause as it sounds right now, all you can do to get anywhere close to that is have, you know, a B together and then have like a basically a piece of paper and say, oh, this is what I was thinking. You draw yeah. it out and then say, oh, no, this is what I was thinking. And then erase exactly. it and then put your own thing. It's like, that's crazy. Like, why are we still doing yeah. that? And I think that's that's the gap that this can fill, I think, is allowing people to collaborate on that kind of thing very easily and seamlessly. Yeah. And again, yeah, like it's it's very specific applications. Like it's not you're not going to walk around every, like 24-7 with the hollow right. lens. Like, I don't think that's Google Glass, I think, was trying to be that. But I don't think there's a market for that. And that's where if Google Glass is even still being worked on is in the is is in the enterprise or just industry applications. Actually, one of the that kind of reminds me of going back to Google I.O. for a minute. Um, In addition to the machine learning they did for photos, they also introduced a bunch of new features for Google Assistant, including bringing it to iOS and bringing it to older phones. Uh, with Android, I forget if it's with Android O or if it's just an update that they're coming to older Android phones now. But with the whole machine learning thing and going with going back to Google Glass, they basically took Google the best part of Google Glass out of the the eyewear and put it in the phone's camera. 
So they introduced Google Lens. I don't know if you heard anything about this, Mike, but um, basically it's an extension of Google Goggles, which they've been working on for a while. It, it incorporates things like Word Lens, which they, um, which is able to translate text on the fly. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I've used that yeah. before. So basically what this is, is it's Google, it's Google Glass mixed with Google Goggles mixed with Word Lens all on steroids. So you can, if you're walking around, a, let's say a downtown street you've never been on, you may think like, oh, what, what restaurants are good around here? And you can actually now, with a combination of geolocation and camera awareness, along with kind of street view, you can you can point your camera phone at anything, basically ask, what is this? Or like, give me more information about this. And so if you point your camera at a restaurant, it will be like, oh, that's this restaurant. And here's the menu. And here's when it's open. And like, you can book a table right now if you want. You can point it at, they used an example of a, uh, a marquee on a conference concert hall. I guess it's not called a concert hall if you're like playing rock music there. But um, so there was a band playing show at the sign. Their sign was on the marquee along with the time and date that the show was happening. So they pointed the camera at the marquee and it pulled out the information and like gave a Ticketmaster link and like the dates, the, the times of the show. And so it's basically without having to do a Google search after you see things, it'll pull out mm. the relevant information from the actual environment and automatically generate all of the information you need. And yeah, so Google Lens right. is coming at least to the pixels, like with updates shortly. I'm very, very excited. If, if you're going to see anything, like if there's anything worth seeing, as opposed to just kind of hearing about it through recap videos or articles... It's the demonstrations they did with Google Lens. I guess they weren't really demonstrations, but the the showing off the power of the Google kind of cloud infrastructure with real time like visual machine learning. I thought it was really mm. cool. Another, yeah, like you like you said, that's, that's basically Google Glass without yeah. the glasses. Another feature, like the dumbest thing, it takes no time, but if you can have a computer do it for you, it's way better. Um, a router that has the SSID and password printed on it, you can just go scan, like point the lens application at those things and it will automatically connect you to the Wi-Fi. Like it's just, there's all these things that machine learning can make so That much would be easier. super helpful. Yeah. And like every example do that. was like that. It was just like, oh, that's such a cool example. And like, it's so much less work than having to manually type it out. You can already do that with NFC tags, can't you? You can, but that requires NFC. And like, th there's already like WPS is a protocol that lets you yeah. basically press press a button and connect any wireless device that's nearby to a network. But being able to do it in such a seamless way just by basically having the, com the phone read the information, it doesn't have to actually get input from you. It just goes, what's right. the information? Oh, here it is. I'm going to enter it. Now you're connected. I've been curious to start trying NFC tags a bit more. Like, I may, they might be more limited than I think, but I kind of see them as as useful as Excel macro buttons, yeah, possibly. And you might have to use a couple different apps, at least like Tasker, yeah. probably for a lot of that kind of stuff. But even then, like, say for my like house alarm, it'd be nice if I could have an NFC tag by the door and just put my phone up to it and then it arms the house or turns off my lights if I had Wi-Fi lights or whatever, yeah. that kind of thing, right? 
but I, I don't know how capable I like I you might be relying more on app capability versus being able to just throw NFC tags on right. everything. But that's one of the things where it seems like automated things can do a better job because in theory you shouldn't need NFC tags. You should just be able to program like an NFC tag requires you to actually go over to the thing and hit it. Whereas if it was properly automated, you would just press a button. Like you wouldn't have to be but ideally, in physical proximity to the sensor. Right. But ideally, these are things that you'd be near anyway. So say for like a Wi-Fi connection, yeah. if you had people like friends over all the time, I guess ideally once they're logged in, then they just remember the network. Yeah. So they don't have to re-enter the credentials. But, you know, you could have an NFC take by the door right. or in the living room, whatever. Say, oh, just you know, put your NFC there and you'll yeah. get connected, right? So, and it's kind of like, oh, I'll get so much visiting done with that. Like, yeah, I think you, you expect to use it a lot more yeah. Than, yeah. than you actually would. But I think the idea of it is kind of cool if it does work that yeah. way. There are definitely a lot of things like that that could or should be easier. Like one of the things, like you kind of want to have security with a Wi-Fi router, so you don't necessarily want a Wi-Fi router to have a built-in NFC chip that lets you like tap to connect. That's one of the things that the Apple TV does automatically is that you, if you, when you bring the remote close to the TV, it will just sync with it. And then like for, for the first time when you're setting it up, it will just sync and be like, oh, I don't even, what is it? It's not the remote. No, sorry. If you're connected to Wi-Fi with the Apple TV, or with your phone and you want to set up the Wi-Fi with the Apple TV, you just go and you can bring your phone mm. over to it and basically like tap and it will transfer the Wi-Fi credentials. And there are things like that where it's like there's security and there's convenience. And for, if someone's going to be able to tap your Wi-Fi router, they should probably be able to access the credentials. Like unless you specifically don't want that, but then... Mm-hmm why would you give someone you don't want to have access to your router, physical access to your router? Right. So, yeah, it, it's always a trade-off, but it seems like in these cases, the trade-off could be more convenience, less security. But I'm very excited nevertheless. I'm glad. Me too. Did we finish early? Is there anything else we want to talk about? Oh, actually, you know what we should do? Because we're early, Nick, I'm assuming you didn't read anything about Svalbard that we posted in the chat uh that is correct although i have a quick like two minute story to discuss with you guys too sure that i forgot to post okay the world has a new hottest chili oh its name is dragon breath and it it uh regi- it clocks in at about 2.5 million scoville heat units okay uh dethroning the carolina reaper which was at around one and a half Oh, wow. so this is dub- more than double is it a linear scale uh yeah it's wow. linear it it refers to concentration right so i mean like is something with twice as many units actually twice as hot like is that how that works yes. uh yes it will have okay it will have however you uh, quantify heat yeah. twice as much and it's it's normalized for weight so it's twice as much capsaicin okay. I believe, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the way they measure Scoville units, it's the amount that's needed. It's like parts per million in like a big tub of water, right? That you can still detect it. The um, the original definition as proposed by Scoville himself uh, was that, and it's not parts per million as I understand it. It's the amount, the amount by which it 
the juice of the pepper has to be diluted by syrup. Okay. Such that you can't taste the heat anymore. Right. So like parts look. parts per unit pepper. Uh, it's a con- it's a concentration of the the concentrated pepper juice, but it's not directly concentration. So like, it's like one over concentration, kind of. Yeah, like you need two point five million times yeah. the amount of pepper juice exactly. to not detect it anymore. Or you'd need to dilute it dilute, by that yeah. factor to not taste right. it yeah. anymore. Yeah. Although, yeah. like now, because that's so heavily subjective, they've they've kind of taken standard scoville heat unit definitions and converted it to like an hplc system okay which stands for either high performance liquid chromatography or high pressure liquid chromatography but it it's effectively the same thing it's just high pressure yields high performance and that's why they call it that yeah yeah it's not actually like a story that yields much discussion it's just they've bred a new one they will probably breed one after that I believe this one, they were actually breeding it for uh, like just capsaicin yield for medical purposes mm. because uh, capsaicin can be used as a like a topical ointment right. for like arthritis and things like that. It's just don't touch your eyes or genitals after <laughs> applying the ointment. So while this is great for medicine, the real winners are the hot wing industry. Yeah. I'm assuming. Uh, marketing really like i don't know if you now i'm gonna go off on a rant here but have you had like anything that's been branded ghost pepper in the last couple of years from a fast food chain i've seen them i haven't had any though you know what go ahead because it's not that hot like <laughs> i think they've used ghost pepper somewhere in the process they've like dropped one into right. a giant vat of something and they're like this technically has ghost pepper in it and then they go ahead and market it that way right like it it's not hot in the least usually there's a miss renfro's salsa which is pretty hot but hmm. that's about it like having having eaten actual slices of ghost pepper on things like pizza and mcdoubles i can yeah. tell you it's it's nowhere near <laughs> nowhere near the heat now, Nick, being the pepper expert of the show, the peps, uh, these expert, expert, definitely expert, pe- pe- expert. Do these different peppers taste different, or is it literally just they're hotter than each other, but generally the same taste? Uh, yeah, they do. They do taste different. Um, I say this from having eaten several of them raw, but not only that, like they do have different. Uh, tastes to them but they also have different heat profiles so like um, a popular well a popular maybe I don't know uh, an example is uh, the Thai chili versus something like the habanero where it's actually interesting because all the East Asian hot peppers are descended from the the new world pepper or the new world pepper seeds that were brought over and they just started to evolve in a different environment. Mm-hmm. So I think the way they describe it is the Thai chili has more of a, a tingly spice to it. Like you kind of feel it as pins and needles on your tongue or that's how they describe it anyway. Whereas the, the habanero yields a more whole mouth kind of heat to it. Mm. And uh, like another example is, I grow Caribbean red habanero. <clears throat> sorry, Caribbean red habaneros. 
which they have a very, very fruity flavor to them, which is part of the reason I like them so much because there is that that flavor past the spice that you can't necessarily get anywhere else. Right. Like culinarily speaking. And that one has a very sharp attack to it. And then it kind of like lets you go. Whereas something like the ghost pepper, it has more of a slow build heat to it. And I think that's just because it's not just pure capsaicin in the pepper, which is why the Scoville heat unit is kind of like, it might be, I mean, for as subjective a thing as they're trying to measure, um, it might be a bad measure just because it doesn't necessarily equate to how you feel when you're eating a pepper. Mm-hmm. So like the ghost pepper is a slow build and takes a while for you to fully realize what you've just done to yourself. Whereas the Caribbean red, once you bite into it, that's about as bad as it's going to get. So I'm, I'm more of like a pepper casual. Okay. So my, my only exposure to peppers is generally either on subway sandwiches or, uh, like sauce delicious options like sriracha both. <laughs> oh i i definitely agree <laughs> i'm just saying as far as biting into peppers to experience the taste i don't have that type of exposure uh so like comparing like tabasco to sriracha to jalapeno or banana peppers like all those different ones have different flavors obviously the sauces have garlic and you know tomato or whatever that's added to the sauce to give it yeah. flavor but generally like the pepperiness has different flavors so i guess that's kind of what i was wondering with respect to these other kind of more pure forms of pepper experience like i mean like jalapenos and banana peppers are fairly you can pretty easily tell the difference even when they're not in a sauce right Mm. so is this does a similar thing exist for these other like extreme types of peppers or is it generally just general pain and degrees of pain when you Um, eat them well, I mean, I, I think part of it depends on your tolerance to the capsaicin as you bite into them mm. or how far it's diluted. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're the type of person who doesn't usually put black pepper on things because you find that too spicy, you're probably not going to be able to taste the difference <laughs> because it's just going to be so overwhelming to you. I think that's Rob. That's <laughs> I, I actually realized that as I was mid-description... <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so there there are different flavors to it like uh the caribbean red is is very fruity um the ghost pepper it's been described as almost a perfumey kind of like almost floral flavor to it and hmm. every i could be wrong but every um uh, review i heard of the carolina reaper was that it it is just really hot, but it actually kind of tastes bad. Like people didn't like the mm. flavor of it. Huh. At which point I, I don't know why you'd use the Carolina Reaper rather than just one and a half times the amount of ghost pepper. If it right. tastes better objectively. Right. But to get the same amount of heat. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I would rather just use, cause once you get to that level, like they're all breeding them to be in the millions. So they're, you could just as easily use one and a half times something that tastes good rather than just right. using one unit of something that doesn't taste good. Sure. Do most of these get used in things like chili when like people try different types of peppers in chili? Um, I mean, yeah, people use them in chili. If you're going pro style, a lot of people will use a mixture of fresh and smoked chilies in mm-hmm. chili just to get different layers of flavor. Sure. Uh, the hot sauce industry will also experience a boom yeah. with and 
you know, various marketing things that will put out dragon breath fries, which are not actually that spicy, but had a dragon breath pepper in there at some point. Now, salsa too, I imagine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nick, you keep mentioning dragon breath, and I understand that pulse is also a type of vegetable. Is there any dragon pulse peppers? Uh, not that I know of. Okay. Would that be might dragon be a GMO- pulses? Yeah. That might be a GMO project for the future. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> I will also mention... I, I imagine, I'm surprised, is dragon breath a legacy pepper now? <laughs> I'm not sure what the joke is here. You obviously missed Rob's joke yep. initially as well. Then clearly, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just think Pokemon. Um, Dragon Pulse. Oh, <laughs> man, that did take me a while. Oof, not enough coffee. It's all I could think um, about, but I understand that you were thinking in a completely different context. So it's fair enough. Not a big Rob, deal. Nick doesn't joke about peppers. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Um, the other thing I will mention that uh, you will see a lot of people saying that it's a potentially fatal pepper to eat, but the reason is that the original press release warns of anaphylactic shock. Oh, wow. Because that's just a standard thing to warn people about. Right. But a lot of news organizations originally, like they just latched onto that and said, it could kill you if you eat it, but it's like, if you eat anything, it could kill you. Yeah, because you could just go into anaphylactic shock for some random reason. Yep. No, I was gonna ask if you've seen those videos of generally their kids uh, just eating peppers and filling themselves while doing so. Oh yeah, that's a, that's apparently a thing. That's definitely that a thing. People do. It is. To me, that's what you should have had on stage. I've also eaten <laughs> peppers and had people film me of their own accord. I didn't ask them to; right. they just did. It's, right. It's a thing. Yeah, but you're not doing it for the views, Nick. You're not doing it for the clicks. <laughs> no, I was doing it for the experience. Also, yeah. ice cream tastes so much better if it's, you know, putting out a pepper fire. Mm. That's probably true. It's I can actually get on true. board with that. <sighs> so, so Rob's going to have some black pepper and then let that burn for a minute or so. I'll have some and chipotle And then put mayo. out the fire with ice cream. Ooh, <laughs> bold. <laughs> Some very dilute chipotle mayo. I'll put one drop of chipotle mayo in mayo. <laughs> yeah, that's you can market that, Rob. Yeah, super tasters spiciness. Is that what you're calling yourself? That's the word. <laughs> okay, Rob. I detect spice when they're when it's undetectable we'll to most that. people, which is a good thing. Yeah, it's good Apparently. for me because I can eat the blandest food and be totally satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we have to wrap up for the week. That sounds like such a white thing to say. (laughs) We have to wrap up for the week, but I want to take at least 30 seconds and just, I'm going to post a link. I'm posted in the chat. I'm going to post it in the show notes. Um, Nick didn't read about Svalbard flooding the global seed bank. The it's not like flooded, but there was some flooding that occurred uh, in the entranceway. That's and awful. It, it's it's really like it's not a good sign for the global seed reserves. I, I assume you're still like Mike did not take this seriously at all, and I tried to get Nick to come and back me up in the chat, and he never actually did. 
because he's been enjoying his life and his weekend. Um, but Svalbard flooding, go read about it because like, Oh, it flooded climate change. It, it definitely, definitely climate flooded. change is real. Mike is not disputing that. And the sign that our backup of like basically the world's agriculture is potentially going to be flooding soon on a regular basis is not good news for like global agricultural stability. Wait, Rob, you said it flooded. Now you're saying it could flood. Well, it, Wait, which one is it? It did. The entranceway did like there was some flooding, but the actual seed vault itself, it was not breached mm-hmm. by this flooding. This is like the Empire State Building argument, Rob. How? Did you go to the Empire State Building if you only went to the lobby? Well, no. In that case, then it did flood. I oh. just watched that episode of <laughs> How I Met Your Mother, too. It absolutely so, so, did. The okay. seed vault flooded. Okay. The The secure portion of the vault is kept colder than the rest of it. And so the water froze before it got there. But like the permafrost that was supposed to theoretically on like human timescales not ever melt is now melting and um we might need a backup for our backup very soon just have they consulted backblaze they have not i don't think oh geez i mean like sending it to space might work like having it orbit having a seed vault orbit that's actually a really Earth. good idea that's a terrible idea protect it from as becoming a, mutant as seeds as an <laughs> as an off planet mike don't <laughs> <laughs> this is how super villains get born. Seed man. <laughs> oh. I as in terms of off-planet backup, like it would be good to have, but it is an objectively terrible idea to send all our seeds to space because they'll just like if that satellite crashes, it's done. Like it's very and unstable. There's so much radiation. Yeah. Like I mean, depending on how you shield it. Right. You'd have to shield it. But, like, if you don't want genetically modified organisms, don't send them to space. <laughs> well, we well, just finished like... talking about bread peppers. Yeah. That's GMOs. Mutant peppers. At its finest. Yeah. Actually, I don't think the peppers get, like, laboratory GMO'd. They're, right. It's all... They just get... Breeding, as far as I know. Spliced. Well, from what I hear, it's all bad, so... It is all bad. Peppers are I all bad. tasty. <laughs> Okay, I got that off my chest. How, Nick, you should go you read say the article. Such things? Everyone else should read the article from Quartz or whatever source you so choose that has a story about Svalbard. But it's not like just found devastating, horrible yet, but it a sign of bad things to come. Another okay, sign so of we bad can, things. We can discuss that on an upcoming episode entitled, Well Shit. Yeah, basically. Okay. Well, in that case, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Future Chat. And uh, you can head to unwindmedia.com slash future chat for past episodes of the show. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. Toodaloo.